When Pastor Chris outlined his plans for our summer series and asked me to lead us this morning in our final study in the letter of Hebrews, I hoped that he might assign this particular passage. This is the point where all of the pieces come together to reflect so brilliantly the glory of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Would you please stand with me? In honor of God's word, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. I'll be reading from the ESV. It's on the screen for you, or you're welcome to use your copy. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, we come to your word with anticipation. You loved us enough to write it down so that we would not forget. We love your word because it tells us who you are. We love your word because it teaches us who we are. It informs us of our great need and it tells us the way of salvation. And so this morning, Father, as we come together to receive it, we would hear from you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. May be seated. Now, I grew up in church and attending Christian schools, and I would not want to hazard a guess as to how many times I heard the aphorism, when you see a therefore, stop and see what it's there for. The simple answer is to look to chapter 11, but there is value in in pausing to review the greater context first as chapter 11 itself marks a significant turning point in the flow of the chapters that precede it. The context of this book, penned by an author known only to God under the direction of the Holy Spirit, finds the descendants of the heirs of the Old Covenant in a culture dominated by paganism. Written, we believe, in the first century, the religion of the Hebrews remained mainstream enough to enjoy at the very least a tacit acceptance. Uh, The faith of the Jews was seen as harmless. The same was not the case for those who had abandoned the old covenant to follow the new. Those who identified with this new sect known as the Way. These people were viewed with a great deal of suspicion, distrust, and even fear. 
While some of this was motivated by concern over the new movement's disruptive effect on the culture, I mean, they were shaking things up, documents from the time actually indicate that the greater concern was that the beliefs of this group and the actions of this group were angering the pagan gods, resulting in all manner of ill fortune. In the centuries to come, violent persecution of Christ followers would become the norm, but those days were mostly still ahead. As the ruling authorities grappled with how best to deal with this problem, they began by relieving Christ followers of their possessions with the simple goal of seeking recantations to appease their gods. They felt that since the actions of these people had resulted in the loss of their fortune, convincing them to return might be possible if they would enjoin the troublemakers in their misery. It is worth noting that at this time, no one was demanding that they turn to pagan gods. Only that they reject this new way. Simply returning to their Jewish roots would satisfy the demands of their oppressors. And as if this were not enough, followers of this resurrected rabbi certainly endured calls to return to the religion of their forefathers. To put it in terms that we would understand, if it's good enough for grandma, it's good enough for me. It's against this cultural and sociological context that the writer of this book takes up arms and puts his quill to the papyrus. Right out of the gate, he lays out his argument in his opening remarks, boldly stating a premise that he spends the next ten chapters developing. Jesus is better. Better in every way. Better than the old system of endless sacrifices and better than the priests who offered them. His priesthood is forever. His sacrifice is once for all and his intercession is perfect unending, and all-sufficient. The true genius of Hebrews, in my estimation, is in its culmination, where its author, having developed a strong argument for the superiority of the new covenant in Christ over the old covenant of promise, takes aim at the last defense, the grandma argument. Chapter 11, known as the Hall of Faith, provides much more than a list of heroes. It is, in truth, a frontal attack on the argument that this new covenant should be feared as teaching something new that opposed everything that God had ever taught before. It connects the dots from the old covenant to the new, showing how the just have always lived by faith. Starting with Genesis 1, it argues that faith has always been the victory. One Old Testament saint after another is recognized for their faith. To give you a sense of just how strongly the author of Hebrews presses this argument, consider this. The word translated faith in our English New Testament, pistis, appears 228 times in the Greek New Testament. Would anyone care to guess which, Brad, you can't guess this because I told you the other day, would anyone care to guess which New Testament book contains the largest number of uses 
of this word, pistis, which is translated faith. Which New Testament book uses that word the most times? Anyone care to guess? Prizes will be awarded. Huh? Hebrews is a good guess. Who said that? Excellent. Yes, that's right. Romans. Romans. Uh, Romans is in first place with 35, as I count. Um, Hebrews with 33, 33 times faith. Next is Galatians with 21. Makes sense, right? Uh, 1 Timothy with 18. And then Acts with 14. Now, are you ready for this? Hebrews 11, this one chapter, contains 25. More occurrences of this word than in any entire New Testament book other than Romans. Wow. Faith has always been the defining characteristic of the saints of God. Here is one way I would define faith. Faith is steadfast belief in the face of adversity. It's the ability to fix one's eyes on God, the one certain, unchanging thing when everything else is changing. Now, lest we get lost in the weeds of technicality here and miss the importance of this line of argument that we find here, remember, these first century Christ followers were under heavy pressure both from within the non-believing Jewish community and from their government to reject this new covenant and return to the old one with its priests and sacrifices and acts of attrition, to return to the familiar, the socially acceptable, the shadow of what had been brought to fulfillment in Christ. And this is why our author, having spent many chapters arguing for the superiority of Christ over all of the trappings of the Old Covenant, unleashes a torrent of Old Testament saints, arguing that by their faith, they were actually forerunners to the fulfillment of the Old Covenant through Christ in the New. So then... Having argued for the first ten chapters for the superiority of Christ, our author puts that argument on hold and begins Hebrews 11. I will not have you stand for Hebrews 11. I am using uh, the ESV. If you'd like to follow along and you have big enough letters to do that at the speed I'm about to read, go for it. Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him in the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. And when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised, therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible, by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, 
of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts, and mountains, and in dens, and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Here then, here then is the argument of our author in a nutshell. Jesus Christ, being at once infinitely superior to and the fulfillment of the promise of the Old Covenant, is in fact the prize toward which the Old Testament forerunners were striving. Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, the Lion of Judah, the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, the lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the earth, is the one and only atonement for the sins of the world. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? He is. Therefore, now here it is. Therefore, Here's where he brings both lines of reasoning together, calling these Jews who were so tempted to return to the easy, familiar way, calling them to action, calling them to faith, and having reminded them of those who had sacrificed so much in anticipation of Christ. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so easily, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I know that you may find this hard to believe of a man with my physique, but I'm not much of an athlete. When it comes to sporting events, my contributions uh, lie mainly in the areas of announcing um, national anthems, and scoreboard technical support. <laughs> if it were not for my children and their interest in sports, they take after my wife in this respect, it might have been years since I would have seen the inside of a gymnasium. That's not to say that I have no interest whatsoever in watching sports, but even during the most engaging of competitions, I'm easily distracted. Sometimes, I enjoy watching the fans. There is something I have noticed. In most sports, 
a player is likely to have as many fans cheering against him as he is cheering for him. That's just the nature of team sports. But there are exceptions. Cross-country is in this second category. Now, it usually does not take very long to differentiate between the students who live to run and those who are on the team simply because they didn't want to sit on the bench in another sport. But when that pistol is fired, every one of them starts running. Let me tell you a few things I've never seen at a cross-country match. I've never seen kids running with ankle weights on. I've never seen a kid wearing a robe or a long skirt. I've never seen a kid pulling a wagon with their little brother in it. I've never seen a runner wearing a pair of flip-flops or big hoop earrings. I've never seen a kid carrying an Xbox or a basketball. I've never even seen a kid chewing bubblegum. Why? Because all of those things, in one way or another, would be detrimental to their ability to compete. And in some cases, even to complete the race. But that's not all I have observed. There is something wonderful that happens when those kids approach the crowd. Every single person lining the course will cheer and clap and encourage every single kid that comes their way. Those whom they know, they will call by name. But those whom they do not know, they will call by the number on their competitor tags. Fans from schools who are sworn enemies with other schools on the basketball or volleyball courts will cheer for students from those same schools along the cross-country course. Not only that, for the most part, those fans will remain and continue cheering with equal or increasing intensity until the last competitor comes over that final rise. With tears in his or her eyes, wheezing to fill their lungs with air, and with a face as red as an apple. Only by that point, by that point, those fans will have been joined by many of the competitors who have already completed the course. Mostly oblivious to this fact, those last competitors will move as if they are compelled by nothing but the cheers and encouragement of the fans until at last they finish. I think you can see where I'm going here. Such is the nature of our course. There are going to be days where we can identify with the words of Scottish Olympic gold medal runner and missionary Eric Little, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. And there are going to be days where these words better apply. Ain't easy being wheezy. But the course is lined with those who have run it before us. Our course is lined by those who have run it before us. And they are calling out our number. Maybe even our name.
I've mentioned before that our children got their interest in athletics from their mother. This is true. Someone told me they must have gotten their looks from me because she still has hers. When we started dating back in Baptist High School, none of the boys could figure out how the drama geek, yours truly, managed to connect with the jock. Frankly, I couldn't either, but I'm glad that we did. 32 years later, it seems as if it was meant to be. All of that having been said, my thespian pursuits have provided me with insights into what is described in this passage. What you see here is a chicken cage. Not really. Just a prop. A pretty beat up prop. It was lovingly packaged and marked fragile, handle with care by our director of dramas at Bethel Baptist Church in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. She sent this to me in the mail as a memento from the years when I was cast as Jesus in our passion plays. It should go without saying that this was not a role I took lightly. We strove for and achieved a level of realism that very effectively drove home the message of the gospel and its cost to hundreds of guests every year. It is difficult for me to talk about what I learned in those years, truly. There were times when rehearsals came to a halt, when, overcome by emotion, I could not be found. My church family understood. Endeavoring with reverence to portray the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world took a toll. Many years have passed since those days, almost 20 in fact. Memory is cruel. But one such occasion stands out in my mind. It was just a regular rehearsal, not a dress one, and the scene was the Via Dolorosa. I was to enter, wounded by scourging to a point that would have killed many men, and dragging the beam of a cross. Crowd scenes are very, very difficult. Because if you tell a bunch of people to act angry, they'll pretty much start making grumpy, murmuring noises to comical effect. For this reason, developing a convincing, angry crowd scene is an exhausting, time-consuming affair. On this evening, we had spent considerable time coaching individual people on how to be convincingly angry. We reset for another run, waiting in silence until the director called out, Action! And then it happened. Crucify him! He's not our king! He's a traitor! Kill him! Crucify him! We don't ever want to see him again! He's a blasphemer! Caesar is our king! Crucify! Crucify! Crucify him! The director was elated. 
And I was ruined. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, of your faith, if you have received it by grace, the one by whom all things were created and in whom all things hold together, was in that moment voted off his own planet. Yet he endured the scourging, the mocking, the spitting, the angry calls, the lies and injustice. The shame. It says he despised or thought nothing of the shame. And he took those nails and that crown and all the searing wrath of an incensed God. Why? For the joy that was set before him. What is that joy? I've had the privilege of standing beside a number of men, sort of right about, right about here, somewhere in this area, as they, with trembling flesh, waited for the appearance of their bride at the door back there, or in another place like this. I've had the privilege of standing beside them, when every single eye in the room is fixed on the back of that room, every single eye wants to see that bride, including his. Every single eye except hers. I've seen the joy in his eyes, and I've seen the joy in hers. Hebrews 6, 19, and 20 says this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Some of you will remember a song made popular by Steve Green. It says, we're pilgrims on the journey of a narrow road. You know what? Sing with me. And those who've gone before us line the way, cheering on the faithful, encouraging the weary, their lives a stirring testament to God's sustaining grace. It goes on to quote this very passage. Some of you will find yourselves digging through boxes of old tapes this afternoon so you can listen to it. <laughs> Remember, uh, Matt has an eight track that works. If I could leave you with one thought this morning, it is this. 
The one who endured the cross for your sin walked that path, walked that course for the joy that was set before him, that he might one day receive you along with every other saint who has gone before or who will follow after as his bride. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God and he is standing at your finish line, cheering you on. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you've been following along this morning in your listening guide, Here it is. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, of my faith. Write that, my faith. Who endured the wrath of God and man for the joy of redeeming his bride intercedes for her and cheers for her to finish the course. Lord, as we have gathered here this morning, we thank you that we had no need to come in any doubt that you would meet with us here. For if you would walk that course, and if you would bear that cross if you would take those nails and if you would receive that crown and if you would take all the wrath that we deserved that we might be redeemed if you would do all those things for the joy of spending eternity with us in your presence, then surely you intercede and surely you incline your ear and surely you meet with us and surely you bring us strength and surely by your Holy Spirit You direct every step. Open our eyes this morning. Father, if there be any here today who have not received this priceless gift, this treasure, this prize, 
which every saint in history has sought. Quicken their hearts now, Lord. Bring life where there is death. Bring joy where there is sorrow. Do a work that only you can do. If that's you this morning, if you're sitting in this room, and you're just a little bit blown away, you never knew, you never realized just just how far God had gone to free you from the slavery of sin and to give you new life. Or if you're here this morning and you've just let that truth become stale, turn to him. He's calling your name. He doesn't need that number. He's calling your name. Don't turn away from him. Don't reject this salvation. We praise you, Lord, and give you all glory. In Jesus' name, amen.